Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jason Knight, and on each episode of this podcast, I speak to some of the best and brightest products and product-related thought leaders and practitioners I can find to help inspire all of us to make great products, great product teams, and great product companies. If that sounds like your kind of party, why not pop over to onenightinproduct.com, where you can check out all of my old episodes with some of the biggest names in product, sign up for the newsletter, join the Slack community, and maybe even attend one of our meetups so you can meet some cool new people and chew the fat about all things product. Now, if you're into this newfangled generative AI thingy, you'll love tonight's episode where I do my best to prompt some non-hallucinatory responses about the future of using ChatGPT and other generative platforms in our products. We talk about some of the things you need to consider when doing just that, whether it's ever right to start with a technical solution and not the problem you're solving, and how to build a moat so you can defend yourself from your competitors and your partners. For all this and much, much more, please join us on One Night in Product. So my guest tonight is Shivy Shi. Shivy's a product leader, educator, impending author, and pickleball enthusiast who says she's passionate about helping individuals find joy in their work, which is of course easy given that we product managers never have any problem finding joy in our work. Shivy started out making burgers for football players, but now she's getting out the educational tomato ketchup, toasting her literary burger buns, and cooking us up a tasty treat with a brand new book that promises to help us all make sense of the generative AI gold rush and build products that matter and drive innovation team efficiency, and market success. Hi, Shivy. How are you tonight? Good. Thank you so much, Jason. That was uh, a really awesome intro. And thank you for the <laughs> plug on Pickleball. That's definitely been my uh, <laughs> my passion. Um, and for those, I think Pickleball is actually more popular in the US. And for those who are out Yeah, I have street, no idea what Pickleball is. <laughs> it's like a smaller tennis well, I should say a bigger ping pong ball on a tennis court, a smaller tennis court. <laughs> That's how you should think about it. It's getting really, really popular, I think, over COVID, you know, in the US. But I'm actually considered one of the, I guess, OGs who knew about pickleball before COVID, before it all gets popular. <laughs> and it originated from Seattle. It's been more than 70 years old. So it's actually an old sport being renewed. Feels a lot like AI, actually. It would be a good <laughs> kicker to start our conversation because AI is like 83 plus years old, but it feels very new because generative AI puts a face on it at the end of 2022. No, absolutely. Well, I'm going to buck the trend and not start there and start just before there, and we'll get back to that bit in a minute. But I just wanted to talk about your, your day job because I think it's going to be super interesting given that the company you work for is the little known and up and coming website, LinkedIn, where you've been working for quite a while now, a few years now. But what is it that you're specifically doing at LinkedIn? And what products are you leading there as a product lead at LinkedIn? Yeah, great question. I've been at LinkedIn for about six years now. The first two years I spent most of my time helping to build tools to supply insights for our internal sales team. So giving them you know, insights into where to sell, where's the opportunities, focus on the CRM or the customer relationship management tools. But the last four years, I've been really working more on the member-facing LinkedIn side, building different type of product, starting with LinkedIn Learning, which is uh, more of an enterprise slash consumer learning product that we acquire from Linda. And we're taking it, you know, tailoring it for the B2B context. So there I work on multiple different part of LinkedIn Learning from 
making it a platform product to be able to ingest different type of content, enable better search and discovery experiences for our learners to find what's relevant for them. And then my last role there before I move on to the jobs and talent side of the house was helping to basically build more you know, uh, visibility to our instructors or LinkedIn learning experts on LinkedIn. And that's when I start to sort of dock food the product to support our creator strategy by building a presence on LinkedIn, both beyond my day job, but also helping to fill ideas and insights into my day job. So testing out products, I newsletter, live events, posting in general, and see, you know, what are some of the trends and best practices, learning by doing really. And then the last year also, I've been focused primarily to help LinkedIn to unlock new areas of growth in segments or industry verticals that have not traditionally used LinkedIn. So for example, healthcare or K through 12 teachers, how can our products be of value and service to those groups? In addition to the core user group, which we consider are mostly tech professionals, financial services, and, you know, you and me. Uh, yes. Growing <laughs> beyond the core. Well, I was going to say, like, uh, based on my feed these days, it seems like the core user base is just a bunch of tiresome hustle bros plus you and me. So uh, hopefully you can sort the algorithm out or get some of your people to sort the algorithm out and give us all a little bit of respite. But I want to speak a little bit about the learning side. Obviously, you're working on that yourself. You talked about dog fooding. But you've also, as you say, built a decent presence, over 100,000 followers now, and you've been a prolific speaker and an educator for a little while now. I think I first saw you when you were talking about product career growth, but you've not just covered that. You've covered quite a lot of topics. And I know that obviously part of that could be just the, like you say, the dog fooding, you kind of want to put your money where your mouth is. But we talked just before this recording started about like the amount of effort that your day job takes. So like, where did the extra energy and time, I guess, come for all of this educational stuff that you've been working on, the content, and just the general, you know, all of the stuff that you're involved in, basically? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for reminding me about bringing up my course, uh, which I recorded <laughs> with LinkedIn Learning, actually, on this specific topic around personal productivities for product managers. And I have to say, product managers, like many, are very, uh, is a very demanding job, right? Because we're the connective tissue. Uh, across the team. So anything that fell through the cracks, it's kind of on you to figure out how to get the team back on track. And so every day could be different. It's always feel like firefighting. And it's funny because in your intro, you mentioned about this best job or something, something like that, like the bad, like a good job where a lot of people want to become a product manager. But I believe last year, end of last year, I was reading a news article from CNBC, which is a very prominent, you know, media outlet in the US, people were saying that the number one job that people wanted to quit was a product manager job <laughs> that pays over six figure a year, right? I think some of the product productivity hacks are just really setting intentions about, you know, what are your big rocks of the day, you cannot do everything all at once. So what is the most important thing? Obviously, uh, the second point would be having out what I call maker versus manager time. So a lot of times product managers are managers, meaning that you need to talk to people, being in a lot of meetings, not necessarily mean you have the authority to managing people, but it does mean that you have to be doing a lot of status report. You need to 
make sure you show up right. You need to build those executive relationships and visibility into your strategy. So I tend to think of my calendar Monday through Friday, usually Wednesday and Friday are my maker times, which I'll make for activities such as writing strategy docs, doing more research, a little bit more thinking and self-thinking time. And then the remaining of the week, so Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday are usually my meeting happy days. So making sure how you sort of uh, schedule or carve out time, like bucket your activity so that you can manage your energy better. Because, you know, for a day, for example, tomorrow I have a lot of back-to-backs, then I would not expect myself to get a lot of things done. A lot of my stuff will be going through those meetings. But being intentional about what meetings you want to say yes and what you want to say no. And I think the other thing is, Something I discovered last year, especially when custom GPT came out, is just how to be smart about automating some of those flows. So take the time to like try out some of those tools, you know, but don't get too caught up about tools. I'm still using an Excel spreadsheet, believe it or not, to track all my, to be precise, (laughs) Google spreadsheet so that I can use it on my mobile easily to track all my to-dos. I do not use fancy Asana or some other tools. They're great too. Don't get me wrong. But if you don't have the time, Like don't spend a couple hours trying to figure out is Trello better than, I don't know, Microsoft to-dos. Just get going, figure out your mental model. And I consistently setting my intention at the start of the day, in the middle of the day, at the end of the day. And when things happen, like, you know, you know, fire came up or things come up, I, I do take the time actually to compartmentalize, right? Like you go for a walk and you come back. Sometimes you just get a little bit more energy. And last but not least, I think I do not get all of it down. Like, for example, when I first started, I decided to post daily. I was able to hold up with that habit or practice for as long as a little over a year. And then work really came up. So right now, I do my best to show up weekly, ideally one or two times a week. But I couldn't keep up with daily. So I think Definitely a lot of trade-off and, you know, you always focus on your most highest impact activities and really being intentional about what those are. And in the course, I actually mentioned about the differences between managing your energy versus managing the clock on the wall. So know yourself better. Like I'm more like a Nile than I'm an early bird. So I tend to get a lot more energy at night, but not during the week during the weekend when I might have a little bit more, you know, free space. So I tend to use those time really well. You get a lot more done in those chunk than, in, you know, if you force yourself to work in a certain time. That makes a lot of sense. And I guess the managing energy thing does also make sense. Although at my age, I don't have any energy anymore. I'm just basically propped up by a selection of caffeinated drinks. But I get the concepts. And I think the thing that you said about kind of compartmentalization is really helpful it's something that i try to do as well and like deep focus for a specific period of time as well so like you know i'm bouncing between lots of different types of tasks in a week making sure that you show up for that thing for the amount of time that you give it and then give complete focus to the next thing rather than trying to do everything at the same time which always gets me in trouble but speaking of generative ai and some of the tools that are out there now you're also on the cusp of releasing reimagined building products with Gen AI. Now, cynical people out there, not like me, I'm not cynical, but cynical people out there might see this as a bandwagon jumping effort alongside all the other product folks out there that were experts in something else and are now all of a sudden AI experts. 
So what's your AI history yourself? Was that something that you used in the before times or are you a more recent convert to the cause? Yeah, that's a great question. And part of the reason why we wanted to release it so soon, so the whole project took about six, seven months to be precise from like like initial inception to like drafting, writing, interviewing people, collecting the knowledge and uh, publishing. Editing itself took two and a half months. A process I did not enjoy, so I just putting it out there. So yes, definitely we we see the timeliness in some of this. That oh, there's a, an element of like writing with wave um, in there as well. But to your question, I did have some AI knowledge when I was working in LinkedIn Learning um, as part of our search and discovery effort to help you know recommending the right type of content for all learners to consume. So I have some AI knowledge prior to writing this book. But Gen AI just, you know, released uh, back in November 2022 at LinkedIn. I had some early access before that to play with the tool. And I remember how mind blown I was even just looking at it at the time. Oh, yeah. I believe it wasn't even 3.5. I would think it was three, but it was all like, like the matter of the fact that AI can write stuff. It's, it's a little, uh, you know, uh, yeah, like this magical moment, right? And then from there, a lot of things, a lot of AI tools came up. Just keeping up with that was was a lot. So 2023 for me was a lot of like learning, experimenting, tweaking. That's why I also onboarded two other co-authors. Uh, one of them, she's more like an investor, now entrepreneur working in the AI space, looking at all the different AI companies. And then another one's also a practitioner at Google, uh, have been building AI products for years. So if I had a little stint at AI prior to this, uh, he had decades of experience in this with a PhD. So also what we did last year was leveraging my audience on LinkedIn and the PM Learning Series, which is a community that I'm building on LinkedIn with close to 60,000 subscribers. I host almost weekly uh, shows similar to your podcast, but we, we do it live. So we have speakers that come in and share about their perspective. I actually ran a total of, I believe, 11 special episodes at the later half of the year, interviewing and deep dive into uh, generative AI applications and founders and business leaders working in those domains. So I think those interviews really helped me, you know, see the trends and the themes that's emerging. And to be quite frank, I'll start with like a lot of people were asking, like, is this a hype or is something a reality? Like, like how, how big is this? Is it a, you know, like crypto that's going to, you know, die and come back and then go again <laughs> for a little bit? I would say Gen AI right now is uh, very much still at a childhood playground phase. Like the demo video could look like, wow. And then when you actually use it, the expectation could range depending on the use case, depending on how good you're at prompting. So it's definitely not quite mature enough to be to support like large scale commercialization. But we're not that far away from being able to do that, depending on use case by use case. So I think right now is the right time, especially if you're a product manager or aspiring product manager who wanted to stay ahead of the curve. Right now is the right time to like try in an era, like learn, experiment. It's also very exciting personally for me because. I came from a less technical background. I did not code, for example. The fact that AI empower and amplifying my ability to leverage no-code tools and means to create something, 
like earlier, I told you about productivity hacks using AI agents or custom bots. That just never happened before. You know, it's it's very exciting. So yeah, I think that's the history. Like I do have a little bit, and then my co-author helped me complement. We did a lot of research. We interview a lot of people, and yes, we did use AI to be the co-pilot and the co-author that's helping us to <laughs> brainstorm research. Oh, you cheated! You cheated. But that's the point of working with AI, right? So we thought that was a good idea to do it. <laughs> but in a summary for the book, you quote an Accenture study from 2023 that says, and I quote, a staggering 75% of C-suite executives agree that the failure to integrate AI effectively in the next five years could lead to business obsolescence. It's a terrifying future. And I know that you worked for Accenture once, so I'll choose my words carefully. Far be it from me to doubt their research or indeed the AI chops of 75% of C-suite executives. But what do you think that these C-suite executives are really basing that on? Because they don't all know about AI, right? They're not all experts. So is this just fear or are they onto something? Yeah, I think there's uh, multiple layers that we can unpack there. I think there's some truth to it. It's not just that one study. I can probably find a couple other related studies that supported a similar point of view. And in fact, actually, Jason, in my book, I quoted... On December 7th, New York Times published an article from actually a pretty respected reporter, a journalist who mentioned about in Silicon Valley, there's this debate called the probability of doom, called P-doom in a statistic <laughs> way, right? It's like how much AI is going to just ruin the humanity. And the debate is anywhere. I think the more realistic one is anywhere between 15 to 30%. But there's definitely like people who are way more conservative and then people who are way more optimistic, right? So there's a whole spectrum. There's no real right and uh, wrong answer at this, this point. I think what the C-suite really was worried about was more coming from a angle of, like you said, first, if the leadership doesn't understand AI, that's dangerous in a way of like, if your competitors understand or newcomers so understand AI better than you, who can serve your existing customer better, cheaper, faster, in a more value-added way, then your business could go under overnight. We've seen that happen actually, you know, in the market, right? Like with Kodak and, you know, being the, the at the time, the crowd drill of like photography and with iPhone coming out, you know, it just becomes BlackBerry, the phone, like becoming, you know, nobody's using it anymore, I think, or... Uh, rest in peace, right? rest in like, peace. Unless you're in finance, maybe in a highly secure environment. But I think that's the the stat was really referring to like in five years, your comp the, the competition, the dynamics could change a lot if you don't know much about AI or don't know how to operate. So for example, another heated debate that came out last year around GPT, you know how ChatGPT, once they have the mobile phone, like, do you still need a search engine? Or do you still need to go to a website such as Cheapervisor or Expedia to book your travels? Or all you need is a conversation interface like the chat GPT with all the agents and your, you know, fingerprints. And then all you need to say is like, hey, I'm going to Paris next week. Help me book this hotel or this flight within this criteria, this budget range, this date. And then boom, and that's it. Then think about all the travel agencies that, you know, you know, that have all the relationships with different booking and what are they going to do with their business? All the apps that traditionally builds the portal, right? Like everybody 
you know, it's, it's a, it's a, I, I call it a healthy sense of tension and just the existential crisis that's, that might come if you fail to understand how AI works and how your business needs to adapt to AI. Well, a terrifying glimpse into the future, but you're going to try and fix some of that with the book. As we just mentioned, you've got the book coming out pretty soon, probably roughly about the same time that this podcast episode comes out. But on an overall level, elevator pitch time, what's the value proposition of the book? Like who should read it? And what are they going to get out of it apart from not losing all of their business and getting put out onto the street? Like, is Absolutely. That- Maybe that, that's the main value prop that you should read so that you can <laughs> get ahead of uh, the game, right? Uh, yeah, I feel actually this this podcast is very special because I think it's going to be the first of the many that will kick off for introducing uh, introducing the book to the world. It's mostly for you know uh, folks who are interested in AI, product leaders, business executives. If you're in academia, you're a student, you're a tech professional, you're enthusiastic about AI. You know, it, it's it's a good book. So part one of the book is really focusing on giving you optimism of what the various potentials that AI can give us in various domains around your consumer life, your career, how you consume content, obviously, you know, how you, how you build your relationship, how you search for product in the various different daily lives, right? But then we go much deeper into looking at how is it going to transform the product development process from both uh, understanding customer needs, what kind of applications are most suitable for using generative AI or AI in general? What's the framework to think about it? Some of the challenges around launching a generative AI MVP, because a minimum viable product, as many people know about building products starting small, what are the unique considerations around that? And then how do you go to market, right? How do you measure success? What's the pricing consideration when the output is unpredictable, right? In many use cases. And then how do we grow from there? Like, can you build moats? Which is, again, referring to the five-year, like, obsolescence, right? Like, what are some moats? What are, if everybody's doing the same, everybody have a chat bot, like, are we getting chat bot for a day? <laughs> or like, you know, what's going on? <laughs> so there's quite some interesting debate. And then the third part of the book is really focused on personal career advice, right? As BPMs, speaking about productivity, how do you 10x productivity with a generative AI tool? with like, I think over 100 prompts that are helping people to inspire them to use it for job negotiation, you know, communication, painting their product strategy, learning about how to say no, how to have tough conversations, uh, how you simulate that, right? Like AI can go beyond just writing stuff. It could be a coach, for example, doing some role play with you, which I actually went through that recently as well. And so, so yeah, I think but there's a whole chapter that also covers about trust framework and ethical responsibility and what it means, especially as a product manager, you know, in this critical time. I think at the end of the day, though, I would say, Jason, just like anything, any technology, I, I believe the big thesis is that, yes, Gen AI brings AI to life versus under the hood, like some magic box that sometimes work, but most of the time don't work. It's helping us to to reimagine how we work, how we live, how we develop products, how we have fun, right? But for product builders, we have a responsibility. We shouldn't be falling in love with the technology in search of a problem, right? Again, the fundamental product management 
philosophies of prioritizing human needs is ever more important. How can we solve actual problems? How can we solve in an intentional, responsible way, such that we don't undermining, demarginalizing human, but we actually amplifying human capability? We're not replacing it, right? We're making humans better. How to keep human in the room, and just really making a true impact. I think that's my hope and the big thesis of the book. That I'm hoping to spark more conversation. One thing I would last thing I would say is that I took a true MVP approach to writing the book as well, right? From ideation to finish, all within you know uh, six to seven months of time. I encourage everybody, you included, and everybody on the podcast listening to offer me feedback. To make it better, because that's the idea: permanent beta experimentation. <laughs> so I do not intend this book to be perfect. To take an authoritative stand on where we are with generative AI, my goal is to spark conversation and discussion. So for me, it's an ever-evolving copy versus like this is like a forty years classic, and you know this is my authoritative take. <laughs> you know, on what where AI is and generative AI. So that, that all sounds good. I'm totally sold. Although I might need to have a chat with you and ChatGPT after this about elevator pitches. But the interesting thing about the thing that you just said about balancing the problems versus the solution, which you just talked about. Obviously, we always want to focus on the solution first. Don't just slap ChatGPT into everything. Make sure that we're doing the right things. All of that stuff. But you also take a contrarian view in the book as well around the times where it might be acceptable to take a technology-first approach and lead with the capabilities rather than the problems. So what are the situations that you would advise doing that kind of thing in? Good eye. You did a really good research <laughs> into like the contrarian view of like when does it make sense, right, to prioritize tag uh, when it's so new. Especially, actually, it's extra true in today's environment because we see a lot of large language model, like uh, my prediction for that is that a lot of these models will eventually only, you know, two or three that's going to win. Even though right now there's a lot of different point of view and who's going to be the winner, uh, different tech companies are raising. So I think eventually there's only just like Android, iOS, and maybe I think Huawei or Xiaomi had another one in China, but that's about it, right? Like, but every company could then take it and customize their little model on top of it. So how, so there's like a basic foundation layer and then on top of it, people can customize. I think until we get to a certain level of maturity for some of those, there's going to be a research heavy angle of making the tech work and then finding the application to use it. So I think in the book, I lay out about five potential factors to consider when you're forming the mental model of when it's worth making a big upfront tech investment. I think the first is that do you have breakthrough potential the tech? Is it a game changer? I think, you know, technologies like stable diffusion that can generate images, uh, you know, at a high, fairly high human-like quality, right? Like in large language model that can write. I argue that's a game-changing technology versus like an incremental, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. So it is a paradigm shift, seismic shift. Second is, is there a high barrier to entry with high potential payoff? Meaning if everybody can just train a language model, and, which is to some extent the case, but they still level it off based on some open source you know, model, right? So if how hard it is to duplicate this technology, if it becomes commoditized, then maybe it's like not, not worth you know, spending the effort, focus on you know, solving the problem. 
do you have the resource, right? Like, do you have large capital of AI talent researchers? And I heard in the market, I think OpenAI scientists easily pay millions a year. So I don't think many startups or even company um, can afford that, right? And then the last two factors I would say is like, how scalable is this technology once you build like that can be deployed to multiple application? I like the using large language model, the foundational model in particular, because they are like the building block, right? Like the uh, off the building, and then you can actually tailor it. So I would think if you are thinking about, I'm, I don't know much about like housing and construction, but like think about the you know laying a foundation. That's the foundational model. But then you can build a three floor you know, a building or a, a 65 floor, uh, you know, landscape, uh, uh, skyscrapers and, and how you want to design it. That's all customizable. That's solving the problem. But building that foundation is where tech investment really comes in. And then whether the timing is the last factor is like, are you a fast mover? Not every fast mover is going to win, but being in the right place at the right time play a key role here. So luck play a factor here too, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. But one part of the book that interests me immensely, given some of the pre-generative AI products that I've worked on in the past, which I can only imagine what they're doing these days now that it's all been, like the game has been changed, right? But you've got this section you kind of touched on when you were talking about the value proposition, the section on why promising products failed at the go-to-market stage. Now, I've got my own opinions about this, but I was curious as to what you believe some of the reasons for go-to-market failure of AI products, either old AI or generative AI. Like, What are some of the reasons that they fail at the GTM stage? Great question. (laughs) Yes, and I I attempted to address it in, in the book as well. I think some of the basic ones, to be honest, is shallow market research or the concept of like falling in love with the solution, right? The tech. You think it's magical. We have this chat bot. Isn't it so cool? Like, but without fundamentally understanding how is this technology addressing a customer problem? So you might have some novelty effects, which means that people might click on it, try it once and like, ah, you know, I don't know what this thing actually does. So the lack of market research or like weak understanding of the jobs to be done that the technology the hot customer will hire the technology for, or just falling for the prey of like, this is such a magical moment, let's do it. The shiny object symptom, right? Or as somebody, Zach said, isn't this so cool? We're the first company in integrating this. So I think all of those are classic go-to-market you know, mistakes or challenges, but it just tends to be intensified. I think uh, for generative AI in particular, like this past year, I think a lot of companies are adding chat capability for good and bad use, uses, right? Like, just being intentional about that, I think it's it's very important. Second aspect could be pricing, right? Like, how do you know what to charge? Is it a is it just simply a pay feature and that's it, or do you, you know, how do you measure the value that you're able to deliver through your chat and and be able to quantify that? I think a lot of companies are still figuring out what the equivalent of value based pricing for Gen AI products. And then I think another classic could be you know, the marketing and sales and product working together and like a coherent three-way partnership. But there's could be a lot of things that, you know, product might be responsible for something and then marketing thought about something else. People working in silos, maybe sales wants to build a certain feature. 
but product doesn't want or there's a lot of just like that triangle need to figure out how to work better together. Not specific to AI, but I think more so for AI because, you know, you could go into a demo, let's say a product plays a video and it looks really good because it's all pre-recorded, great. But if the executives in the meeting ask you to improvise with a new prompt or a new scenario and then all of a sudden facepalm moment came, you know, that's when you knew that, hey, you know, the product's unready. And just, you know, how did customer success around onboarding customer retention, the novelty effects, how do you incorporate feedback? It's actually surprisingly hard because AI is this black box. Certain feedback can be biased. So how do you make sure you get the right volume of quantity of data to make an influence in the model, right? If you just get one or two feedback, even though it's super strong, AI might or might not read it. Second is quality of the feedback. You know how sometimes people talk about it, you only rate something when you're like super happy or super unhappy. <laughs> and those are too extreme, right? Like you you never really get the the truth, the representation. So how does your experience continues to evolve and building that capability? Yeah. So and then public awareness. Like are people gonna be like not everybody like you and me are thinking about AI all the time. You know, they might be like, oh, I don't, there are more scariness, right? Like people think the P doom, right? Remember probability of doom? Then they're like, oh, <laughs> let me try this thing out. So I think there's more people in the general public that might want to try AI and say, oh, this didn't work. And reinforcing their previous notion of like AI is just this gimmicky thing. Try once, didn't work. And they don't come back. And it's hard to change that perception after they try once. So there's a lot of like, underestimation of the public awareness, their willingness to try and the educational gap of what it takes to use the best experience. For example, this book is probably a product of maybe close to a thousand prompts coming together, right? Like I I lost count of it, but easily a thousand prompts. At the beginning, the quality can be pretty bad, you know, like (laughs) it's definitely a lot of trial and error. And I'm pretty sure 99% of the people would not have the patience to do this many trial and error. So a comprehensive list of potential risks and mistakes and things to watch out for. Yeah, I think you've uh, covered the vast majority of what I would say mainly around explainability, the ability to persuade traditional thinkers that this is something that they should invest time in, the inevitability of errors and, you know, it's a probabilistic thing, right? So the fact that the quality isn't always there and you kind of have to sacrifice the precision for the kind of the generative insights that you can get so like there's lots of things that make it tricky to sell to traditional thinkers that in many cases still make up a quite a large part of your buying base i guess but you talk about moats in the book and you mentioned it a little bit earlier and we've seen situations where interesting looking startups kind of get blasted out of existence because they build everything on chat gpt and then open AI, turn on a new feature, and the startup's dead now. Now, I know people can create their own LLMs and equivalent, but isn't this just a general ticking time bomb for a lot of startups? Like, How can you defend yourselves from being basically outpaced by the platform that you're relying on? Yeah, mode is a really hard one to, to talk, uh, to, to, to argue. So in the book, I actually presented two perspectives. We call it blue team, red team. Red team is basically like, nope, you're screwed. There's no modes in generative AI. Everybody is going to use it. It's going to be commoditized, just like everybody has a sub, like a mobile phone, you know? 
Bloating is like, hey, if you approach it in a thoughtful way, moats are necessary and achievable. So I think, again, like it comes back to what problems are you solving? You know, having been really clear about that and, and being really intentional about how you want to solve it and, and being able to, you know, actually train the technology with the right kind of data to solve those problems. So there are a couple of things that we can think about when it comes to moats. Some people argue that having proprietary tag and data set could be a moat. I think, yes, that's true for near term. TBD on future, how much of like truly proprietary data, you know, because a lot of core cases, like many things are going to be publicly available. So how much data models can be, you know, a sustainable moat versus versus being commoditized, that could be debatable. I think that's one. But in the near term, it is a unique leverage. And because of that, if you are thoughtful, you're building the right customer relationship, you, you build the right UX to hook people in, then you might still have a moat because people are lazy. People are resistant to change, right? Like <laughs> I heard good things about Entropic's you know, large language model. I play once or twice. I still primarily using GPT-4. So there's that like sort of user stickiness. And then there's a understanding your vertical. I think there's going to be a lot of vertical integration, uh, looking at a specific niche within healthcare, within law, law firms, within human resource, within. So it's going to be less of like a big giant doing everything really well, but more like a lot of vertical players doing things really well because the data are specialized there. They understand the workflow. They understand the customer needs really well. People with focus and speed, that's you know what's going to create a more durable brand as well as network effects, right? Like when you, it's the flywheel, the data flywheel. Once you use it more, you collect more, you understand it more. That's how you'll be able to kind of, you know, form your defense, you know, forts to kind of um, fight against some of the competitions. I do think that this round, it's a little bit unfair to a lot of startups compared to in the past, you know, where startup is known for speed and focus and large company is slow. But with large language model, I feel like a lot of large companies like Microsoft, for example, or right, Google and Meta are already jumping on the gum and quickly plug in this API, call this, you know, GPT before they start their in-house model. So this, there's a, they're lip-frogging is closing the gap between what startups can do and what large companies can do. So it's an arm race <laughs> for good and bad. Well, it's good that someone's finally looking after the big corporations after they've suffered for so long, right? But I know you spoke earlier about like trying to enhance and augment people's you know, productivity, for example, and you talk about that in the book as well. But there are some people out there forecasting the end of product management because who needs those pesky product managers writing PRDs when unicorn product savvy engineers can use chat gpt to do all the messy stuff and then they can just focus on delivering the ultimate value to their customers and the pms can all go and do something else instead probably joining all the people whose companies have collapsed in skid row but do you think the death of product management as a craft is the inevitable end state of llms or do you think that there's still hope for us poor pms yeah, I, I actually in the book, I had a whole a speculative day in the life of a PM in the Gen AI era. I think, remember the big thesis I said, yes, Gen AI is disrupting how we live, how we work, how products are developed. But the fundamentally, the number one guiding principle 
are still solving fundamental user needs. And that's ever more important. So I think the craftsmanship of product actually gets more important. But the things like following agile practice, safe, you know, the <laughs> product owner, that kind of stuff is going to get automated over time. Managing Jira tickets and stuff like that. I think what is going to set product managers apart. And I really like this quote from one of the interviewers that I interviewed during my PM Learning series, Amit Foley, who's also endorsed the book. He's a VP of product at Microsoft Teams and Group Me. He mentioned basically the sky is the limit, meaning that in the future, what differentiate a great product manager is going to be how big can you dream? The real limitation in product is no longer you know, your bandwidth to manage tickets, right requirements, or the feasibility of like AI not understanding certain things. It's really the breadth and depth of one's imagination to conceptualize what can be achieved. Because in the book, I actually quoted tools that you don't even need to have designers helping you. PMs can just use prompt to generate a couple of design iterating so like designer can then finalize it, right? Like, and, and Don't tell the designers, they'll hate that. Designers are still needed, but I'm saying that PM can use graphic to communicate better, to visualize their, you know, the arts of the possibility. So I think the skill set is going to be more and more so on the real fundamental product craftsmanship. Problems to solve, solving it in a creative way, solving it in a strategic way, and communicating that and influencing the stories that you wanted to pay. So doing it in an ethical, responsible manner. Fair enough. Well, that means I can renew my chat GPT subscription in good conscience and not feel that I'm contributing to the inevitable heat death of product management. But where can people find you after this if they want to find out more about your book, check out some of your content, bug you with LinkedIn feature requests, or maybe even challenge you to a game of pickleball? Yes, uh, definitely. Maybe more challenge to pickleball than LinkedIn requests, but uh, jokes aside, <laughs> you're, you're welcome. So I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. You can look me up at Shibishi. At Amazon, you can look for our book called Reimagined, Building Products with Generative AI. Hopefully in the show notes, you can see that too. And uh, last but not least, we also have a Substack called Product Management Reimagined with the D, Reimagined com, And there, me and my co-author will share behind the scene, how we wrote the book, the processes, the ups and downs. It's definitely not an easy process. And um, latest updates and new insights, new interviews. We are planning to do a lot more interviews this year, throughout the year, with AI leaders as well. Um, yeah, so be on the lookout for that. Right now, when you visit, it's probably still pretty blank because we're just getting started. But again, like we're leveraging AI. I want to spark productivity conversations around this and also keeping up with the day job, right? So doing, doing, how to do <laughs> the best in both, both showing up and, and supporting the community. Oh, well, fair enough. And obviously support that. And I'll make sure to link that all into the show notes. And hopefully I'll have a few people wandering in your direction to find out more. Well, that's been a fantastic chat. So obviously really glad that we could find some time. It's been a while setting this one up, but we got there in the end get to go deep on some important topics so obviously wish you best of luck with the book hopefully we'll stay in touch but yeah as for now thanks for taking the time yeah it's great thank you as always thanks for listening i hope you found the episode inspiring and insightful if you did again i can only encourage you to pop over to one 
Check out some of my other fantastic guests, sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on your favourite podcast app and make sure you share with your friends so you and they can never miss another episode again. I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but as for now, thanks and good night.